Now, as part of my efforts to mix up the Vision on Sound format a little, here's another in the essay strand. This week, fun with flags. In the comedy series The Big Bang Theory, Dr Sheldon Cooper, as part of his online life, hosts a vlog known as Fun with Flags, which initially seems like quite a lonely and, let's be honest here, rather sad pastime, but in later seasons this small internet phenomenon grows alongside his increasing circle of friends and companions in the form of Amy Farrah Fowler and others, who also become more and more involved in this strange obsession. And flags, of course, can indeed be a lot of fun. Well, maybe not a lot exactly, but it's certainly a fun strand in that particular sitcom that neither outstays its welcome nor gets overplayed. Somehow I feel there's a metaphor for modern life in there somewhere, and I'm not just referring to an isolated soul slowly but surely coming to a place where he can have deep and abiding friendships having once been unable to do so. That I get. It's the increasing obsession that society seems to be developing with waving flags around that I'm finding increasingly troubling, and I'm, I'm not really sure where it started from really. I suppose I first became aware of them when those tiny little flags on sticks started appearing on cars during footballing tournaments. Now, back then I worked in an office that had things like no options you had to join in sweepstakes for some sporting events that meant that you bunged in your quid or your fiver or whatever it was and proudly, or in my case bewilderedly, displayed your flag on your desk and much hilarity ensued as various countries were knocked out and flags started to disappear. That year I got Brazil who were apparently quite good, and I made a few bob out of this nonsense for once, but that aside, I had a colleague who took it all very seriously, even down to buying a footballing shirt for his country of choice, France, which apparently didn't go down too well when he walked into bars wearing it later on. There was jeering, there were catcalls, but as far as I'm aware, there were no threats of physical violence against his person for choosing to wear the colours of another country. Interestingly, because the place I worked was particularly sensitive to such matters, doubtless due to the general demographic of its workforce, rather than have a load of absenteeism whenever an England game, but only an England game, fell during working hours, they bit the bullet, set up a big screen in one of the meeting spaces, and allowed employees who were so inclined to go downstairs and watch footballing for a couple of hours, rather than lose an entire day's production. Happy campers and all that sort of thing lots of bonding. A happy workforce is a productive workforce, and so on, and so on. But these events, especially for somewhere like the United Kingdom, made up as it is of several nations allegedly pulling together for the common good, can be somewhat divisive when some, or indeed all, of those individual nations qualify for the tournament and the old rivalries begin to flare up, often in the form of good-natured banter between those waving their various flags about or displaying them in windows or on garden flagpoles. Let's set aside that slightly disturbing notion of the need to have a garden flagpole for the time being, shall we? After all, some might say that having something to bond over, some sense of national identity, is a good thing, a unifying thing. Rally round the flag, boys, eh? And on some level, it's kind of hard to disagree with that. After all, many of us have fond memories of our parents putting up the flags in our windows or joining in with organised events for the Silver Jubilee in 1977. I even remember my mother, probably at least two sheets to the wind, merrily tripping along the street, heading home from the rugby club adorned with a sort of red, white and blue tinsel that I very probably sulked over having any association with. And again, even though I paid little attention to it myself and instead dove deeply into several box sets for the duration, it's just not my thing, OK? The London Olympics in 2012 didn't give us any reason not to feel proud of seeing our streets, our stadiums and our athletes bedecked with the old red, white and blue in a kind of national celebration of diversity, welcome and unity. The difficulty with it is that 
in general, there's nothing wrong per se with the flag itself, and those historical moments like VE Day, where to see the country joyously indulging itself in its newfound freedom from the threat of war, or the national celebration that was Coronation Day in 1953, another national moment of shared joy. But for every joyous moment, it seems that there is a more sinister, dark opposite. The problem, to a certain extent, comes from a very dark stain on human history that occurred during the 1930s when one flag, or two or three, but one in particular, got plastered all over one nation and came to represent a philosophy so horrific that to this day that same nation will not allow it to be displayed. And yet somehow, somewhere along the line, things started to change in Britain and a little bit of a bad taste started to creep into the consciousness when the flag started to be waved. Somehow the flag, or flags if you include the unadorned St George version, started to get associated with very bad things. Perhaps very bad people started to associate themselves with it and started waving it about in the name of far darker, less inclusive philosophies. For me, this troubling association began a long time before London 2012, actually. One of the most troubling afternoons I've ever spent was the day we went to town looking for shoes for my partner to wear at the wedding we'd been invited to attend. A simple enough task, you may think, and perhaps you might also believe an ordinary enough situation not to prove so dark and troubling to me. Anyway, a very long day in town, started quite early, and we were hoping to be done with it and out of the way before the big game was due to begin mid-afternoon. Sadly, shoe-choosing proved to be a trickier pastime than you might believe, and as we revisited our umpteenth shoe shop of the day for perhaps the third time, the whole building started shaking and the shop windows rattling to the marching of several hundred feet and the banging of huge drums as the supporters arrived, waving their red and white flags, wearing their red and white clothes and with their faces painted with yet more red and white in makeup worn like some kind of tribal war paint. Some were there with their children, possibly having a family day out and not for any malicious indoctrination reasons, well, apart from passing on their love of football, that is, and despite the racket and the numbers, it probably wasn't at that point any more threatening than any other like-minded group of people moving along en masse. They were heading in from the direction of the bus and train stations to meet in the centre of town to watch the big game on the big screen that had been set up by big business to draw exactly this type of crowd. So far, so terrifying for me, so normal, I'm sure, for regular sportsgoers. Generally, the largely amiable crowd seemed to move along without incident, and the mood seemed light-hearted enough, but the problem was one of intimidation, because if you weren't in the slightest bit interested in this big game, it immediately became apparent that it felt as if there was something very wrong with you. You were not part of the us, which meant that, by definition, you were part of the them, because it became very apparent very quickly that the big game was an all-encompassing monster, and if you weren't fretting and obsessing over this hugest event in the history of everything, then there was something weird about you and you were obviously being highly critical of anyone for whom this was the very centre of their existence the core of their being and you better not be laughing at me fella you see these things can get very tribal very quickly and i've always been very suspicious of the mob acting and thinking as one and suitably bolstered by the confidence that strength in numbers gives them one hive mind one hive thought and woe betide you if you happen not to want to join in it's why i used to feel uncomfortable at concerts too and I'm not anti-football, or anti-concert for that matter. Live and let live. They're just not my particular thing, that's all. If you happen to like that sort of thing, then good luck to you. But equally, don't take it as a personal slight when some of the people you meet don't. It's not meant personally. We can all have different interests and still share this sad little planet and try to get along as best we can despite our differences, surely. Anyway, that day, we got home 
intimidated but unbowed, and reports of trouble later that evening, fueled by lager and sunshine and displays of enthusiastic bravado and, shall we say, certain differences of opinion, did not surprise us. But the sheer power and forcefulness of that single-minded crowd, all moving and thinking as one, has stuck with me, as I fear it did with certain political elements who might want to capitalise on such phenomena for their own darker and far more sinister purposes, because it's all too easy to hang a simple slogan onto some kind of disturbing notion and scream a simple message that if you're not with us you're against us and watch as the people who choose not to think about things too deeply pick up that ball and run with it. After all, most things in life are genuinely far more complicated than black and white, or yes or no. But if you aren't too interested in delving into the grey areas, the whys and wherefores, and wondering if, just if, there might be other choices, other solutions that might please a lot more people, it's too easy to take a stance and decide that everyone who doesn't agree with you unreservedly is somehow the enemy, when, of course, like with most things, life is generally far more interesting and complex. And most people you meet as individuals in your daily life are still actually genuinely quite reasonable. You can have a conversation with pretty much anybody, and even agree to disagree on occasions. I mean, yes, there are always going to be idiots in the world and people incapable of listening to anything anybody else thinks, but they are, or were, usually few and far between. You may look at the people walking along the average high street in the sure knowledge that at least half of them voted a different way than the way you did, but it shouldn't mean that you absolutely have to treat them with suspicion, contempt, or actively hate them for that and that alone. People are complicated things, even the ones that you do like. After all, even I can understand that philosophy of family first, and if you cross me and mine, I'll have you, even though I might not personally think it's necessarily the best approach to have myself. After all, if someone you happen to be related to does a terrible thing, you may need, ultimately, to be supportive of them, but equally you have to face the fact that a terrible wrong, even if committed by someone you happen to love, is still a terrible wrong. I've often struggled, for example, with the way some soap operas feel the need to create overblown domestic situations for dramatic effect. If you have a problem with someone, the situation should never escalate to the point of terrible or even fatal violence, to the point of a bim, bam, bom, boom, cliffhanger, climax, when actually sitting down and talking to someone is probably the best way to resolve it. If someone is causing you a problem with, say, a divorce settlement, the first option, or even any option, should never be to hire a hitman. That's a soap opera solution. That's not the way we should handle our problems in the real world. But this sometimes seems to be the kind of solution that is creeping into a society that laps up these hyper-dramatic storylines because, and I fear that this may be the case, if you are exposed to these kinds of solutions often enough, it normalises these kinds of responses enough that they can start creeping into the real world. And if there's nobody around to actually have those discussions, you know, asking questions like, do you think that's really how we should handle these situations? And what do you think might be a better approach? Because personal response responsibility and human interaction does seem to be disappearing in our increasingly screen-based modern lives, then every time a child picks up a knife to take to school to defend themselves against the bullies will be another loss for all of us. Granted, real life might not be overly dramatic, but it's how real grown-ups resolve their problems. And it's why social media is problematical too. If you went to the pub and met an old racist, sexist homophobe and someone in that pub called them out as being an old racist, sexist homophobe, they often went away, thought about things and perhaps became a little more thoughtful about their racism, sexism and homophobia. We learn what is acceptable behaviour from our peers. Nowadays, however, that same racist, sexist homophobe goes home, rants about it online and gets affirmation from some other racist, sexist homophobe that might live hundreds of miles away and whom, under normal circumstances, they may never have met in their everyday lives. But suddenly, instead of maybe rethinking their position on certain uncomfortable beliefs, 
Instead, they've got someone who agrees with them and they've got confirmation that they were probably right all along and pretty soon you've got a movement and all of these unpleasant people are talking to other unpleasant people and they think that they have enough numbers to make some actual noise and so they start to and all of those unpleasant beliefs that society really started to believe that they had a handle on suddenly resurface and without the necessity to question those thoughts can very quickly run unchecked, grow stronger and lead to more and more hostility whenever either side of whichever belief system you have gets changed challenged. Dislike for the unlike, war to the death. And so, simple phrases that can often in themselves be difficult to disagree with in principle, family first say, can be twisted to disguise a more troubling agenda. Simple messages twisted to conceal a position on something that can be a more inconvenient truth. Many of us know how a marketing questionnaire can be phrased just to get the result you want by making the contradictions in your answers absurd enough that you can't possibly disagree with yourself without looking foolish. And this is precisely what these slogans choose to do. A lie can be quite simple. Showing it up for a lie is far too complicated, especially when only the original lie is widely remembered. And it's very similar with flag waving. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it. But somehow by associating it with all that is good and proper, even if what you're saying is hiding something more terrible and improper, makes you believe that you're on the side of the angels. So whilst the Stars and Stripes may have acquired a certain untouchable saintly status in its home country, it can still represent something wicked to people in other nations. And wisdom and understanding comes not from blind loyalty to what it represents, but from understanding that not everybody else feels quite the same way about it. And why? But when you start to treat a flag, especially one with as bloody a history as ours has, as some kind of holy relic, as if it represents some greater good that those waving it are not actually prepared to deliver, or you attach it to some misguided growing sense of nationalism and start to single out those who point out your hypocrisy as being somehow less than patriotic, especially when their patriotism is for a far better version of the country than the flag wavers may want, then the flag itself comes to represent something far more wrong than even their intention might suggest. So if your idea of the best of Britain is Dad's Army, say, a TV programme that has two flags in its title sequence, and there's no doubt as to which is the better one, that's all well and good, but once you start to fixate on a time that was, let's not forget, a bloody worldwide conflict and try to use that as representing some kind of lost golden age and you aspire to have a world that's something more like that, then there's got to be something wrong with that, hasn't there? And if you then tie all of that to some absurd notion of exceptionalism as your national identity as human beings on a planet filled with other human beings and will not tolerate any gentle mockery of such absurdities, then things can start to unravel very quickly. Keeping up appearances and last of the summer wine and the like might very well represent a gentler kinder view of the Britons some dream of, but back then it was the flag wavers who were being gently mocked the most, and rightly so. We used to find such people slightly absurd with their dreams of some lost empire and their World War II fixation, but now they've become the figures many aspire to become. In the time of Cool Britannia, it really didn't seem too bad to wave the flag, drape pop stars, underpants and ice cool E-type jags with it. But now it's been reclaimed by the sort of toxic minds that have such a massive majority that they can do whatever they want and about whom there are no longer any checks and balances to stop them. There's this growing sense that they're fine with whatever atrocities are committed in their name as long as they're done from a position of agreeing with them, but that they will come down hard on you if you take any other stance. And well, what do we call that, people? Ah you know. Once upon a time, a series of very British coup was almost considered too fanciful to be a serious possibility in such a sensible nation as the United Kingdom. Such possibilities were gently mocked in spitting image when their excellent a very British revolution sketches. What do we want? Revolution! When do we want it? After neighbours, but before Inspector Morse. 
We were far too sensible a people to fall for that bally nonsense, even during the heights of extremism foisted upon us during the 1980s. Such things seemed impossible then, but are starting to feel less impossible now, because we've reached the point where we start to feel a certain amount of discomfort when our neighbours fly their flags on St George's Day, as, in our minds at least, in recent years, this national symbol, alongside its more complex cousin the Union flag, has started to become more of a symbol of toxic nationalism and unpleasant undercurrent. You see, with regard to the Union flag, it does have such a bloody history, and its composition made up as it is with the elements of several other subjugated national flags really does rub so many people's noses in it every time it's taken out, waved about, and attached to whatever dubious message you're choosing to attach it to this week. So when it comes to displaying the flag, my advice would always be to proceed with caution. And if we can ever wash the blood from it, maybe we too will one day be able to have fun with flags again. Good night. Thank you.